I struggle, I'm up and down, I messed up, I wasn't very kind, I wasn't thinking, I was hangry. Those are some of the things, phrases we use often in our little relationships uh, throughout the week. But in 1973, there's a psychologist named Carl Menninger who wrote uh, a, a book, and, and in this chapter he writes, and the title is The Disappearances of Sin, an Eyewitness Account. And this is what he said in 1973. In all of the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin. A word which used to be veritable watchword of prophets, it was, once, it was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? Sin with an eye in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. Tears are being sown in the wheat field at night, but is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings, guilty feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? Sin is doing wrong things, but it's so much more than doing wrong things. Sin begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong things. Sin is idolatry. Sin is disbelief. It's rebellious actions. And so today, we deal with sin. And we deal with our many attempts to minimize it, to lie about it. And so we begin where we left off last week, 1 John 1.5. If you have a Bible I'd love for you to see it with me if you can. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Jesus, that's who he's speaking of, and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, John who's also the author of the gospel of John, uses light a lot in his writings, uses it in different ways. But from the rest of this letter, we can understand that, that what he means by God is light is two things, is that God is the source of life, he's the source of eternal life, and he is morally, ethically pure, perfect, both and. That's what John is speaking of, that life emanates from God. He's the source of life. There's no death or absence of life in him. Radiant, buoyant life, where, where in him there's so much fullness of life that he actually then creates life out of his overflowing love and light. And then he saves out of the same thing, but then he's morally, ethically perfect. And this, this is a big deal for John. This is why he's putting it up front. This is why he's saying this is the message we heard from Jesus and declare to you that there's not one blemish, not one blemish 
Like when you see something beautiful and maybe it's symmetrical and it just works out, but it has that little like tinge of like, oh, there's that little thing that kind of messed up. What I'm saying is there's nothing. There's not one blemish, not one stain on God's character. There's no devious motives in him, no impure motives of him. He's, he's not a user, but he's a lover, a perfect lover. God is light. And then John gets into these implications, these ethical implications of what that means, of how this plays out. Okay, if God is light, then who are we and how are we to live in light of that? But what he does is he summarizes. If in your translation, if it's the CSV, I know it's there, maybe the ESV as well. But in your translation, you'll see the quotes around these statements that he says throughout the rest of this passage. And what he's doing is he's uh, addressing three statements uh, that people are saying, most likely these false teachers that are trying to guide uh, the people and the sheep that he loved and has pastored, uh, they're trying to guide them away. And so he's going to address these three, te- these three claims that these false teachers are saying. And what are, the, what are they going to say? They're going to say this. We have fellowship with God. We are without sin, and we have not sinned. Some bold claims. Bold claims. We're just going to break it down one by one. Number one, we have fellowship with God is what they are saying. Verse six, if we say, now the quotations, we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. So they're, they're professing things, these false teachers, the things that they're then communicating to, to the Christians in John's uh, sphere of influence. Uh, they're teaching these things. And they're saying like, we have fellowship with God, but their lives don't match with their proclamation. Their profession is up here, but they're actually walking in it is actually dead. Dead. It's not happening. They're walking in darkness. They're walking in death, rejecting the revelation of Jesus. And John, so pastorally concerned and loving, doesn't want his readers, his fellows, brothers and sisters to, to believe this lie and live this lie. So that's why he jumps into it, just gets right to it, because he's concerned for them. Because not practicing, not practicing the truth, that phrase in this verse, means doing evil. So it's not enough to claim to know God. We must also live in light of the truth of who God is and put it into practice and avoid Sin. Avoiding sin. Now, why would I say that? Well, we'll see in a bit, but in chapter 2, verse 1, that's what John says his second purpose for writing this is. I'm writing things, why? So you may not sin. So if you can take away your arm link distance that you can do to push, oh, he's talking to other people, he's not talking to me. No, he's talking to us. And he's writing these things for our discipleship, for our growth in holiness, for our maturity, for our joy, for our sanctification, so that we wouldn't continue in sin, but that we would put it to death and not be owned by it. But back to the first statement. We have fellowship with God. Claiming fellowship with God and walking in darkness is self Deception. It's lying to yourself and others. And this is what Joel Beakey writes in his systematic theology. He says, if we claim to walk with God as his friends, but conduct ourselves in the habit of unrepentant sins, we are liars, 
and hypocrites. So let me, let me just step a little bit further because I, I understand who we are and I, I know you pretty well. It, if we minimize that Jesus is God in the flesh and we minimize the seriousness of our sin, do you know what we're doing? We're lying to ourselves and others about who we are. John is arguing against these false teachers' claims, but then so graciously he gives us the path of disciples. Like, no, no, you don't claim to have fellowship with God and then walk in darkness. Verse 7, we walk in the light as he himself, God, is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this metaphor is a bit uh, elastic because he says God is light, but then he said God is in the light. But that means to walk with God, to, to follow God. That's what it means to walk in the light. It, it means to expose our sin. That, that's what he's getting at about walking the light with God. But the surprise is that John doesn't say, uh, if you walk in light as God is in light, you'll have fellowship with God. He says you'll have fellowship with one another. Now, it's true that we have fellowship with God. But he's saying, when we could walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have this deep friendship and communion and intimacy with one another. When the truth is, there's no real fellowship with God that is not expressed with one another, his children, his people. He has saved us from our sins, true. We'll see that in chapter 2 clearly, but he's also saved us to a community, a community of love, into this intimate fellowship, this gracious family. Tim Keller wrote that the less you want friends, the less like God you are. Because to be in fellowship with the Father is to love as he loves, and he loves being in friendship, and he loves being in fellowship. That's, that's his M.O. Before he was ever creator, the father was the father to the son, and loved the son through the spirit in this perfect, intimate fellowship. And so if you're struggling with, like, isolation and drawing away or giving up on friendship, or you've been burned, and you're like, I'm just done. I just want this one person and no one else. And, and what that's saying is you've probably been wounded pretty deeply, honestly. That, that's probably what that reaction is. But the fellowship of God is also the fellowship of healing. Where then you can experience the grace of God, the Trinitarian grace of God, and then be moved, compelled by the love of God to move towards others and actually want more friends and fellowship and move into this family and, 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 and draw near to this fellowship with one another. Now, I, I bank on this verse. I bank on this verse, particularly when I sin. Because sometimes, 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 when I sin against my wife, I think it's best not to tell her, right? 
I sin in some way against her, and in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, just, I don't need to tell her. It'll be all right. Like, it's, I'm actually going to protect her because it won't hurt her. So I'll, I'll keep this to myself. Maybe I'll tell someone else, but, but, but not her. Because I think it'll tear us apart. Like, I think it's going to uh, wreck our relationship. But in God's economy, when we walk in the light by confessing our sins, we are drawn closer to one another. As we are exposed by God's light and also cling to God's grace in Christ. I've witnessed many marriages blow up, not by confession of sin, but hiding sin and then getting caught. But confession isn't all. Confession isn't all. We confess, we expose our sin, and then fight by the power of the Spirit to put this sin to death. Because I've witnessed many relationships blow up because they confessed for years but never actively fought their sin. They merely acknowledged, yes, this was sin, yes, this was sin, yes, this was sin, yes, this was sin, yes, this was sin. I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. But never actively put a plan in place to say, I'm gonna actually put this sin to death and not just keep confessing and it, hurting this person over and over and over again. We miss John's statements, <laughs> particularly his statement that I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. We're not told to be perfect family. We're told to be repentant. Training ourselves in godliness. So we must acknowledge and grieve our sin before God and others and flee from it. Run. We confess our sins. And you see the beauty there? In that confession, we are not put aside, put out. We don't destroy the fellowship. We actually experience the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin. The blood is just shorthand to talk about his sacrificial death. By his death, you're forgiven and cleansed. And by his death, you're empowered by his spirit to put sin to death. He didn't save you, Superman out of here jet, and say, figure out sin by yourself. He said, no, I'm going to give you the spirit who's going to guide you, teach you the truth, and convict you of sin, and lead you to follow me in your life. What I'm getting at is, yes, confess, but also we need to make a plan of how we'll fight our sin. Confession without a plan for change most often is just the mere mouthing of words. We're saying it because we want to get someone off our back, uh, because we, we uh, know it's the right thing to do, uh, because maybe we feel a little pressured towards it, but confession without actually a plan for change is just, I agree with that. I'm not going to do anything about it, but I agree. And I'll agree with it in the future. And I'll keep agreeing with it, but I don't have any actual plan for my sin. But before we get to the plan, 
are thinking about the plan, the war begins with acknowledging our sin. And that's the second statement. So you say, we have fellowship with God. Now they say, and we are without sin. What? Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what they're claiming. So this, this is the only time that John uses this phrase uh, here in this letter but he does use it four times in his gospel, and each time it means to be guilty of sins. So what they're claiming is that we are not guilty of committing sins, most likely stating that since God rescued us, we haven't sinned at all. So they're claiming to be sinless, but the massive problem with that, one massive problem with that, is to encounter God yourself, or just think about every scriptural, anecdotal story of human history when someone has encountered Yahweh. What happens? Their sin is exposed, right? Like they fall out on their face because they see his holiness and his love and his purity, and they fall and they say things like, wretched man am I. I'm a man full of unclean lips. To encounter God is to have your sins exposed so this doesn't compute. They say they have no sin, but God says, you do. In a different way, he says that. (laughs) That's how I would say it. But that's why he's saying, you do. You do have sin. They say, "We we we have no need for a savior. And he says, you do. You do. They're self-deceived. That's, that's what John is saying. Spurgeon put it this way powerfully. See this. The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you, and you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the higher requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day, and you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. As the salt flavors every drop of the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. People who say they have no sin are self-deceived and do not see the truth. And so John is arguing very clearly, don't follow them. Don't follow people who lie to you and lie to themselves. Like idols, they're users, not lovers. So don't fall in this trap. Don't fall in this trap. Christian, yes, you're new. Yes, you're born again. Yes, you've been forgiven. Yes, you've been gifted the Spirit. And yes, you still have indwelling sin. That's the reality. Spiritual maturity is not hiding our sin or minimizing it, but confessing and repenting of it. A sign of growth in grace is more repentance, not less. A sign of growth is quicker repentance, not the false claim of sinlessness. But here's where it really gets in our crawl. 
I don't know if I've ever used that phrase. I'm sorry, a thousand apologies. I don't even know what a craw is. Uh, but this is where rubber meets the road. I'm more familiar with that one. I feel, feel safe there. Uh, but it really gets to us with this part. We're heavily tempted to minimize our sin. I mean, speaking of the things around us, just in how you're influenced by culture and the world around you, heavily tempted to minimize our sin. Think about your own self-righteousness and defensiveness, heavily tempted to minimize our sin. Heavily tempted to functionally live in self-deception, saying our sin isn't really sin. It's a struggle. It's a weakness. It's this. It's that. It's this. Now, I don't want to minimize the varying factors that we all live in some difficult context, and we've all been sinned against uh, in different varieties and, and ways, and, and there are meaningful, serious problems with our, our health and, and uh, with our physiological problems and makeup, like all that. But I'm saying, at the end of the day, when it actually comes to sin, your sin, my sin, we are heavily tempted to minimize it. And so let me get into your business, because I love you. Because I don't want to just say, Hey, we minimize our sin. You'll be like, okay. <laughs> like, I guess I'll take that assertion. Don't prove anything. Just say it, and we'll agree. I, I want you to see personally how we minimize our sin. So six ways. Number one, defending. There's six ways we minimize our sin. We defend. You find it difficult. So if you, if you defend your sin... Minimize it that way. You find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. When you are confronted, your tendency is to explain things away or to talk about your successes or justify your decisions. And so as a result, people around you are, are hesitant to approach you. And you probably rarely have difficult conversations uh, in your life about difficult things. You just defend. Or maybe you fake. This is similar to, faking is kind of similar to the, the, the church culture that I grew up in that it kind of felt like they followed the second statement of the false teachers. Like, we have no sin. Everyone just fake it and put on a happy face. Faking is you strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectable image. And so your, your behavior to some degree is driven by what others think of you. Or why you think of what other thinks, others think of you. You probably don't like to reflectively think about your life. Um, and so maybe people around you don't really know you, the real you. Maybe you don't even know the real you because you faked for so much. You've lied, minimized so much. Three, hiding. You just hide. You conceal as much as you can about your life, especially the the bad stuff. This is different from faking. In the, the faking, that's about impressing others. In hiding, it's more about shame. You, you don't think people will accept or love the real you. And so you hide everything from them. Because to expose yourself or expose your sin is just, you, you think, it's, it, it's all going to be shame. I can't go down that path, so I'll just hide. Or maybe you exaggerate. That's how we also minimize. So you tend to think and talk more highly of yourself than you ought. 
you make things, good and bad, out to be much bigger than they are, usually to get attention. As a result, things often get more attention than they deserve and have a way of making you stressed or anxious. You guys okay? Okay, number five. No answer, so I'm going to take that as a yes. Number five, you are quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. So you're, you're always like, you maybe get confronted with your sin, but you're like, but spouse, but this person, but my kids, but, and you're like, you're always pointing this direction. You have a difficult time owning your contributions to sin or conflict. There's an element of pride that assumes it's not your fault. Like you just assume, can't be my fault. Why? Because I'm self-righteous and prideful and I've got this, like you don't say that to yourself. Most of us don't say I'm just prideful, it's just the way I am. Uh, but that's how we functionally live. Element of pride that assumes it's not your fault and, or an element of fear of rejection if it is your fault. And so you blame. Because if it really is your fault, then maybe they'll reject you. Maybe they'll walk away from you. Lastly, downplaying you tend to give little weight to sin or circumstances in your life as if they're normal or not that bad. As a result, things often don't get the attention they deserve. They have a way of mounting to the point of being overwhelming. In, uh, in all of these ways that we minimize our sin, we're really joining these false claims from these false teachers. We, we wouldn't probably adhere to what they're asserting, but functionally we play this out in how we minimize and, and really push down and make it not that big of a deal again and again. Our sin's not that big. It's not this. It's not this. It's not severe. It's not really against God. But in the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky, if I could pronounce that correctly, it would be nice. But in his book, he makes this very serious warning. And this is what he, he writes. It's powerful. The one who lies to himself and believes his own lies comes to a point where he can distinguish no truth either within himself or around him. And thus enters into a state of disrespect towards himself and others, respecting no one. He loves no one. And to amuse and divert himself in the absence of love, he gives himself up to his passions and his vulgar delights and becomes a complete animal in his vices, and all of it from lying to other people and himself. Do you, when I read 1 Corinthians 13 about love, do, do you know what hits me at the end of that? What hits me at the end of that is that that is my Jesus. Patient, kind, enduring. Like Jesus is love. You, you know, when I read this, you know what I felt? I like, that, that just, is, is that describing the evil one? Is that describing the devil? Like so self-deluded, so many lies, can't even keep up with all the lies that he said. And then, then you get into it. And us as humans, if we go down that same path, you know what lies are? Lies are dehumanizing. 
you get to a point where you become more and more like an animal and give yourself over to all of your desires because you're so self-deceived. You love no one. He says you respect no one, and so you just do whatever you want, whatever cravings, whatever desires just are in you. Just say yes all the time to them because you're acting more like an animal than a human being created in the image of God. That's why I said this is a, this is a, it's a serious warning. But in response, John gives us the path of discipleship. We don't claim sinlessness. We claim the blood of Jesus. That's the path of discipleship. We claim not that we have no sin. No, we claim we are sinners and we need a savior. We need him. Now, not just at the beginning of our salvation, our conversion, now and tomorrow and forever, we need a Savior because we're sinners. That's what he says in verse 9, if we confess. So not lie, hide, proclaim, assert sinlessness, but if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Disciples of Jesus, beloved disciples, we confess our sins because we aren't defined by our sins any longer. We aren't slaves to sin. We aren't what we have done in the past. Disciples are not defined by their sin, but defined by God's love for them so they're open and honest about their sin. Disciples hold on to their master in the reality that he is faithful and righteous to forgive them because of Jesus' death in their place. So we hold on to him tightly, cling to him. Do you know that if you're holding this tight to Jesus' grace, then you can stop holding so tight on your sin? hiding it, minimizing it, downplaying it, keeping away from everyone. You, you're so secure here and loved here and that nothing is at threat that you can begin to just uncurl your fingers and say, I don't have to hold on to these so tightly and hide these. And I can actually walk the path of Jesus of being in the light and exposed and confessing my sin instead of trying to control it all and earn some righteousness or some standing on my own. David paints a very vivid picture of this. So I've given you some Russian literature I've given you some Spurgeon. Let me give you some poetry, okay? Psalm 32, this is what David, he paints this picture of his lack of confession. In verse three, he says, uh, sorry, let me tell you, this, this is after his adultery with Bathsheba. This is after having Bathsheba's husband killed uh, on the front lines to cover up his tracks, okay? So he writes this, Psalm 32, verse three. 
When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. That like that? That sounds like guilt, condemnation, maybe some depression, like the, the consequences, reaping the consequences of his sin is what he's doing, and hiding it doesn't make it better. Maybe I should say that again. Hiding your sin will not make it go away. Hiding your sin does not address it. Hiding your sin doesn't allow you to experience cleaning from your defilement. Jesus does. And so I kept silent. This is what happened. I kept silent. This is what happened. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not, meaning no longer did I conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And then we have to go back to verse 1, because like a wonderful song, he starts off with the hook, with the chorus. And you know what the chorus is? How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So the play on words is if, if you, by yourself, try to hide your sin, God won't cover it. But if you uncover your sin to God and to others, then God will allow you to experience his covering in Christ for your exposed sin. <laughs> and he says, how joyful. How joyful is one, not that claims sinlessness, not, not the one that, that, that is like, thinking they're perfect. No, how joyful is the one who's acknowledged the sin in them and the sin they've done and have experienced the forgiving grace of God. How joyful. That's what John wants for you. That's what God wants for you. That's what I want for you. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. One pastor says it this way, and I love this imagery as well. He says, we need to change our hiding place. I think maybe implicitly, I didn't read the context, but implicitly I think the idea is you're going to have a hiding place. You're going to hide somewhere. He says we need to change our hiding place. Rather than covering our sins and hiding in deceit, we must confess our sins and hide where? In God's mercy. That's where we need to hide. That's where we hide. The reality is the gospel changes our lives and it changes our habits. We move from hiding to exposing. Minimizing your sin in all the ways that we said earlier, those six ways, minimizing your sin is a habit of self-delusion. I don't know if I can say that more starker, more starker. Still getting in the saddle. I'm sorry. I break the fourth wall a lot now. I noticed that, though. Well, there's not really a fourth wall because we're friends, but I talk a lot about what has happened in the midst of preaching. Thank you. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. This isn't hyperbole. 
minimizing our sin is an act of self, a, a habit of self-delusion. Confession is a habit of grace. Which means this, this isn't despair. I hope it's not despairing for you. Because this isn't meant to be despairing. Confession for your soul is a gift from God who actually loves your soul. Confession is a habit of grace. And so I'll just ask you honestly, for all of us, this is a bigger conversation to have, but are our habits more formed by the world around us and everyone else and our phones and all those things than actually Jesus? Meaning, when do you set aside time in your week to confess sin? I use those three words intentionally because it's true, habit of grace. But maybe it's a, for you, a thought, but it's not a habit. Maybe it's a Sunday thing, but that's it. Maybe when, when someone up here says something that feels a little like, con, like you feel some conviction, maybe then, but just you have nothing on your calendar set aside to confess your sin to God. But if the gospel is true, then it forms our habits in how we operate and function in our prayers. One of the best things that I have implemented from my sabbatical is getting on my face three times a day and praying, just knowing I'm going to have this time. Did I pray before? Of course. Uh, but it's just beautiful to know three times a day I'm going to get on my face and talk to the Lord. And for me, one of those times includes confession of sin. To consider something like the prayer examine. To consider like, okay, what's going on? What has happened today? How have I lived before the Lord? How have I interacted with the people around me? And I'm not bragging me. I'm saying... I've implemented this recently. <laughs> I'm not saying like, hey, look at me. You guys are doing this terrible. I'm, I'm just trying to give you some example of like, hey, you, you've got to have a habit for this. It's got to be a part of your routine. So thus far, the claims are this. We have fellowship with God. We have no sin. And they say another one, but just say it really differently. We have not sinned. Verse 7, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, some people argue that the difference between the second statement and the third statement is well, one's talking about sin, sin nature and one's talking about actual sin. But I think if you keep diving into it, it's just John saying again, but what he's doing is adding on what happens in this. When you say you have no sin... Not only are you deceiving yourself, but you're actually making God a liar. So just track with me the logic of 1 John 1. Jesus has told us God is light, but God, but, but these people, these false teachers are saying God is a liar. That's the juxtaposition that John is addressing. God says we still sin, but we say we've not sinned. We're not guilty. We've arrived. We've figured out perfection, you should join. That's what they're claiming. 
Now, typically, if a, another person tells you something that sounds too good to be true, you know what? It is. But if God tells you something that sounds too good to be true, it's true because he's true. God is light. So everything he tells you that sounds like, I don't know if I could believe this, it's true. feel like you can't believe it. It's incredulous. Yes, but it's true because he's true if he said it. He's full of good news. Confession at its essence is essentially just agreeing with God that he's truthful. Meaning, I agree with you, God, about what you say about my sin. That's confession. Now, it's a difficult pill to swallow, confession is, can be, but you know what? God is full of good news. Look at chapter two. First one, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the whole world. So he's addressing, writing these things, so that we may not sin. Now, so we get, let's just unpack that and think about that. God's love for us means he despises the sin in us, the, the defiling effects of sin in us, the things that are warring against our soul. And his love for you means that he wants you to love what he loves. And what does the Father love? His Son. And so, so God the Father wants you to avoid sin, to stay away from sin so that you can love the things more and more like he loves. And what does he love? The son. He wants you to love his son. That's why he gave you his son. So that you would love the son. To fervently love the son like the father loves the son. Which if you just break that down means you forsake idols. You believe the gospel. You worship Jesus. You aim for holiness. Joyful obedience. So we come with a plan to actually fight our sin and not keep falling in the same trap over and over and again, merely mouthing words of confession without a repentant heart. But then you got the good news. But if you do sin, Jesus has your back. If you do sin. This is the Father's plan for sin. This isn't reactive. This isn't him trying to hurry up and figure out, oh no, this is, they've made such a mess of this. His plan is to send the righteous for the unrighteous. To send the perfect one to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That atoning sacrifice, that language means that Jesus is the one who died to pay for our sins, to take the wrath that we deserve for our sin, and he's washed us clean. Which means our, our confidence with God doesn't rest on our goodness. I want that to sink in. Our confidence before the Lord does not rest in our goodness. It rests on Christ's personal righteousness and Christ's suffering in our place to divert God's holy wrath away from us sinners. 
But that's not the end of the good news. He keeps going. Jesus not only paid for your sin as the atoning sacrifice, but he rose from the grave, and he's at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you, advocating for you. We can say the, uh, the sacrificial work of Jesus is finished, but he's still working because he's advocating for you right now. People have marked recently that that's something that's just kind of been gone out of our thinking in Christianity is that we don't consider what is Jesus doing right now. Presently, pleading his blood for your every sin. So you can freely confess because of that. That just frees you up to confess your sin. Why? Because you have the perfect advocate who died for that sin pleading his blood to the Father for you all the time. All the time. Interceding. Where the accuser of the brethren enters into God's throne room and is like, hey, you see Aaron? Check this out. Have you, have you noticed this recently about him? Have you seen Julie? You see what she's thinking about and talking about? Have you seen Willis and, and, and these things that are going on with him? Accusing, accusing, accusing. And Jesus, like a UFC warrior, backhands the devil and says, no, my blood. My blood. You can keep saying things, they're not gonna stick because my blood interceding for you presently, currently. That means you can walk in the light as he is in the light. Entrusting your advocate, Jesus, that encourages you to keep short sin accounts, encourages you to quick, be quick to confess. Rather than remaining silent, when you know you have an advocate with the Father, you run to the Father. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. At two levels, I think this is difficult. At one level... There's some of us that are really have to deal with how we've dealt with our sin up to this point. At one level, we're like, I need to confess of my lack of confession. I need to confess for what I've done with my sin in the past and minimizing it, downplaying it, and blaming it, exaggerating and hiding. Like you need to, and then there's also, I think, others of us, maybe this is simultaneously, but I think there's also others of us that just feel maybe a tense amount of pressure on our souls because we've been walking and hiding our sin for so long and God is touching you. As Psalm 32 says, with his heavy hand on you, not, not to harm you, but actually to bless you into confession. Like, if you're feeling that, I don't want you to then interpret it as morose and despairing. I want you to interpret it in light of God's truth, and that being, it's an invitation from the Father to lay these down. 
So if there's something you're hiding, hear me. God is light. And so you can confess your sin clinging to your advocate. Really, you have two options to be simplistic. You can keep covering your sin, like David said, or you can uncover it and let Jesus cover it for you. I want to make that decision for you, but I can't. I know the hollow eyes of people that have been ripped by sin that has crushed their souls and they keep hiding it and it just eats them away. I want you to be free. I want you to experience the cleansing from that defilement, the forgiveness that you would actually call your sin sin, agree with God, and take it to him. So I'm going to pray for that. And then our whole response, you just have, at the least here in this room, you have 20 more minutes to actually speak with and deal with these things before the Lord. Father, I pray for this. I pray for you to free to free your people because sin is bondage. And I ask out of your good character, because you love us and you're for us, I pray that you would do this good work in us, that you would give us these gifts to uh, see who you are and to walk in light and to confess our sin and expose this. Lord, would you do it in us? Would you help us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.